Then Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, Listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Well, I was, uh, a while back, I was hearing a, a speaker at a Christian conference, and he was a business speaker speaking to the conference. He was talking about the value of diversity. And so it was interesting because um, he was not, you know, as I said, he was not a pastor, he was not a preacher, he was a business speaker, but he was demonstrating a diversity by adapting to his audience. And so he adapted to his audience by speaking about this particular parable. Now, he was talking about how different audiences hear stories differently. And I've, I've mentioned that with regard to Scripture passages. There's so much in Scripture, for instance, that sets rich against poor. And depending on where you are in life, you're going to hear that very differently. If you are hearing that passage in Bergen County, you're going to hear it in one way from the perspective of the rich person. And if you are in sub-Saharan Africa, you are much more likely to hear that story from the perspective of the poor person. So it changes your perspective. So he talked about this passage, and he said that they had done a survey, um, and they surveyed pastors in different parts of the world and asked a simple question. How did the son end up destitute with the pigs? How did this happen? And he said that they asked pastors who were in Russia, and they said, 
because there was a severe famine. This is what happened. Then they asked pastors in Tanzania, and where they had a, a very collective attitude toward uh, one's condition, and they said it was because no one gave them any food. And then they asked American pastors. They said over 90% said because he blew his money. All right. So, sure enough, we're Americans, we're right. There it is, verse 13, he squandered his property in dissolute living. Okay? Blew it, blew his money. But, in verse 14, a severe famine took place. Hmm, okay, it wasn't just he blew his money, it was also famine. Then in verse 16, no one gave him anything. See, it's all there. All those factors came together that created the situation that he was in. Yes, he blew his money, and then there was a famine, and then when he was out of funds, no one would give him anything to eat. And so the upshot of this story, when we actually see what was there as a factor, what we understand is that his plight was a team effort. He ended up in the place where he was desperate because of his own bad decisions, because of external circumstances in the world, and because no one was willing to help when he found himself in that position. So the question that we end up facing in this story is, what do you do when you encounter somebody who has made a bad decision because we see people make bad choices all the time we see people make choices that end up acting to their detriment and the question becomes what do you do when you see that and in our story what we have is two very different responses the first of course is the response of the father it says he saw him far off and he was filled with compassion now I always found this to be kind of interesting because it, it says that and the father saw him far off, okay? So he doesn't see anything about him, all right? It's not like he can see him close up. You know, like you've seen someone close up and you go, wow, you know, you look like you haven't eaten in a while. Look like you've lost a lot of weight. No, it says he was far off. So why was he filled with compassion? See, I, I always wondered about that because, you, you know, if you just saw him, if he was just far off, you might say, okay, he was filled with joy maybe that he saw his son coming back but why compassion how would he know that compassion was called for and so it's nowhere in the scripture this is pure conjecture but i'm just presuming that he did what my parents would have done he was kind of keeping tabs on him while he was away I'm just kind of presuming that somehow he was asking around. That somehow as people went to town, to market, whatever, it's kind of like, uh, anybody seen my boy? Because remember later on in the story when the elder brother is upset, right? The, the elder brother is upset. It says that he is angry and he had accused his brother of wasting his money with persons of ill repute. And the question becomes, how do he know? Right? 
So it would seem that throughout this adventure that the, that the son is having, the family isn't completely in the dark about what's been going on. All right? That somehow they just kind of understand that he found himself in a tough place. And what you have is two very different reactions to the fact that he has made decisions that were bad for himself. And the question, it's a very simple question for you, which are you? Which are you? When somebody makes a bad decision around you and they're suffering the consequences, okay, what is your reaction? Because I think at the end of the day, when others suffer the consequences of poor decisions, your reaction says a lot about your heart. Is it your reaction to say, well, they're just getting what they deserve? They're just suffering the consequences. They, they made their bed. They need to lie in it. And if that is your attitude, that says something about you. Or if you have the attitude of the father in the story who says, you know what? Made a really bad choice. Let me see what I can do to help bail them out of that bad choice. What do we do? Now, when you talk about that, when you talk about bailing people out of bad choices that they make, there's a pretty practical objection that comes into play. The objection of, well, you know, if you do that, they make a bad choice and you bail them out, they're just going to make the bad choice again. And, yeah, sure, that happens. I'll, I'll tell a story about myself. Uh, my, my, I think my college roommates and I are one of many data points that led to the fact, you know, these days in the last, I don't know, however many years it is, it, uh, y you can't rent a car unless you're 25. And it used to be that as long as you had a driver's license, you could rent a car, but now they won't rent a car to you unless you're 25 years old, okay? And I think my college roommates and I contributed to the enactment of that rule. Uh, uh, because I, I remember when... Uh, I was in college, we were going on, we took a little road trip, and we rented a car, and we took out that little thing called collision damage waiver, you know, where you pay them a few extra bucks a day, and it means that if you damage the car, you don't have to pay anything. And what happened was, we were driving around town, and when my friend, my friend of mine was driving, and he hits this, like, huge pothole, and you hear the whole car, you know when you hit that, and you hear the whole car go, Boom! And we all, in unison, shouted, Collision Damage Waiver! <laughs> okay. After that, I think he actually aimed at a couple of potholes. And we had the same response. Yeah, don't rent cars to 20-year-olds. Uh, I think it became a really good idea that they made the limit 25. Because that's a, that's a piece of what folks talk about, that, you know, they, they object at a practical level, that if you bail people out of bad decisions, they're just going to make the bad decision over and over again. In fact, there's even a term for it. It's a term, it's called moral hazard, is the term. Moral hazard. That if you bail them out of their bad decisions, they'll make more of them. There's a problem with having that thinking come into the church, though. The problem is this. 
Moral hazard's a concept from economics, not theology. Moral hazard is an economic term that was created to say that if you, for instance, ameliorate risk with things like insurance and stuff like that, you lessen the incentive for people to avoid the behavior that they're insured against because they're insured. So, yes, at a practical level, yes, when you're talking about economics, this is a concept that's there. But it wasn't theologians who invented this concept. You hear a term like moral hazard, and you hear the word moral, and you think, oh, they must be talking about ethics. Oh, they must be talking about something about good and evil, those kinds of things, as they use the word moral. No, this came out of economics. It didn't come out of theology. Because in theology, we don't worry about this problem. See, it's one of the things I've talked about a few times in the Gospel of Luke, and and it comes up again next week, is that running through the Gospel of Luke is this notion that we are not to be guided by practicality in the way we love others. That we are to show love, we are to show compassion in ways that don't make practical sense. And so we don't let this concept come into our theological thinking. Let economists worry about this issue. Not Christians. When it comes to talking about how we're going to serve God, we set this aside. Because quite frankly, in our own lives and so many lives, we do set this aside when it comes to, for example, family members. That we have family members who make bad decisions for whatever reason. They make bad decisions that leave themselves in bad places. And what do parents and brothers and sisters and so often do? They bail them out. Bail them out because that's what you do. They bail them out because they say, yeah, I know, I know they messed up. I know they blew it. But that's my son. That's my daughter. That's my brother. That's my sister. I'm not going to leave them to wallow in the consequences of their decision. And so much of the Gospel of Luke, so much of what Jesus teaches, so much of what we learn in Scripture, our Christian faith, is centered around the idea that that attitude that we would have for our son or our daughter or our brother or our sister is the attitude that needs to expand further. So this isn't a concept that we bring into our theology because our theology reminds us of something very, very simple. Jesus died to save us from the consequences of our choices. Jesus' death was to save us from the consequences of the decisions we have made, keep making, and will make again. And I've heard that very same moral hazard type of argument applied to Christian faith. They've said, look, if Jesus just forgives your sins, why don't you just go and sin some more? Why not just go out and do it again? Jesus died to forgive you. Well, there's a very simple choice that we make in faith. God could have done that. God could have said, yes, you know what? I'll forgive you once. Not twice. Don't push it. 
forgive you two times. Don't, don't push it. Because if you do, if you keep doing it, you're going to pay. That could have been the way God chose to, dealt with, to deal with us. And that would have been motivating us to obey on fear. It would have been God motivating us to obey out of fear for the of the consequences that might happen. God chose instead to say no. I'm going to motivate you with love. I'm going to forgive and I'm going to forgive and I'm going to forgive and I'm going to hope that your obedience will come out of that forgiveness. Sometimes in families, you see what happens when we've had that situation. You know, I, one, of, one of my brothers, we had that situation in my family. Sometimes when you have that situation, when you have the person who makes the bad decision and has to be bailed out, maybe they make it again and they have to be bailed out. At a certain point, what you hope is that a motivation that they will feel is, I need to get it together because I don't want to be a burden. I need to get it together because I love my family and I don't want to put them through what it takes to make me whole when I mess up. And you hope that it is the love that motivates them in their obedience that says I'm not going to keep presuming upon what they do for me because I love them. And God decided that that would be the way God would work with us that God would forgive and forgive and forgive, that God would relieve us of the consequences of our choices and hope that our love for God would motivate us to not keep making those same bad choices again. So as we continue to move through Lent, as we continue to move toward Good Friday and Easter, this is very, very basic stuff. Jesus died to save us from the consequences of our choices. And so as we deal with the people around us who've made bad choices themselves, how we choose to respond to them says a lot about what's going on in our hearts. Will we choose the path of judgment and motivation by fear? Or will we choose the path of compassion and motivation by love? It's a simple choice that Christ laid out for us. And it sits in front of us every single day.